Hey, take that Bible. We're in John's Gospel this morning. Kind of finish up chapter 2. Chapter 2. So turn in your Bible to John chapter 2. And let me go ahead and read the text for you. And I'd like to read from verse 13 through 25. And we're looking at the temple cleansing. Really a, a fascinating text. I've been having such a wonderful time in John in my own heart. I've taught through the Gospel of Mark a couple times. And John is just so different and so unique. It's been refreshing. I trust that you'll be refreshed. But you follow along as I begin at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple and with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking to them about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. May God bless the reading of his scripture. Kent Hughes spoke of a memorable passage. Maybe some of you have read it in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader that really touches on John chapter 2. Lucy and Edmund are engaged in an adventure when they come to a large grassy expanse and the green grass was spread out all over the blue horizon, except for just a little white spot in the middle of the green expanse. And as Edmund and Lucy looked at this spot intently, they had difficulty making out what it was. And being adventurous, they begin to travel um, across the grass until finally the white spot comes into view. And it is a lamb a lamb that was white and pure. And the lamb, you remember, maybe is cooking a fish breakfast for them. And I think Lewis probably based this passage on the imagery of John chapter 21, where we find Jesus cooking a fish breakfast for his disciples. The white lamb, of course, is a Christ figure. And the lamb gives Lucy and Edmund the most delicious breakfast they have ever had. Then ensues a wonderful conversation as they talk about how to get to the land of Aslan, which is heaven. And as the lamb begins to explain the way, a marvelous thing happens, and here's how Lewis recorded it. He said, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself towering above them and scattering light from his mane, end of quote. What a picture. 
And I really think what Lewis is illustrating there was a great truth, a great truth in the Scripture. The truth of the Lamb is the Lion. And in biblical terms, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And that Lamb that takes away the sin of the world is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, In fact, qualities we consider to be Lamb-like, we would say gentleness and meekness, are indeed in Christ, and it's all over in the Scripture in Christ. But so are the regalness, if you will, and the ferocity of a lion. And the book of Revelation speaks of the wrath even of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 6. So gentle Jesus, we might say, meek and mild, is a concept that has been so overworked today that many people follow a Christ who has no resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament. That Jesus is an idol drained of his deity, a weak, you might say, good-natured deity whose great aim is to let us off the hook. In fact, frankly, not my heart, but what I see him portrayed, at times he's portrayed as weak, if I were to say even maybe effeminate at times. And yes, I would say Jesus is meek and mild. In fact, he describes himself in that way in Matthew 11, 29, when he invites those who have burdens to come to him. All he who are weary and heavy laden, you know, come unto me. And dozens of scriptures in in the New Testament testify, of course, to his gentleness. However, we need to balance this with other descriptions of our Lord. Descriptions like this in Mark 3, 5. When Mark was describing a man with a paralyzed hand, and Jesus looked around at those who were questioning him whether or not he would heal that man on the Sabbath. And the text says in Mark 3, 5 that he looked around at them in anger. In other words... He knew what they were talking about sitting around the walls of the temple. And the text is quite clear. He looked around at them in anger. And of course, we understand that's a righteous anger. In fact, I would say to you, there was nothing gentle, nothing gentle in the fierce message that he sent to Herod either when he said in Luke 13, go tell that fox. I mean, he was he was bold was Christ. I'm thinking of his boldness to Peter when he basically said, Get out of my sight, Satan. Matthew 16. I'm sure the Pharisees in the temple saw nothing of the gentleness and meekness when he said, You are like whitewashed tombs, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? I mean, these images are in our mind, and often he's so gentle that we've stripped him of his, I would say, masculinity even, his strength, his convictions. But the fact is, Jesus was as godlike when he cleansed the temple as when he hung on the cross. He was revealing as much of God on this occasion in the temple as when he was at Calvary. And what appears to be an outburst of uncontrolled anger here in the temple is in reality the outflow of his holy zeal 
if you will, by the Son of God. In fact, let me just touch on it with you where we were two weeks ago. Look at verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. Here's how one historian built it when Jesus walked into Jerusalem at that Passover season. Remember that uh, Josephus in his history said that at Passover season, as they would all come back to commemorate the Passover lamb in remembrance of what God did in leading them out of the book of Exodus, uh, Josephus said there was as many as 2.7 million people that kind of all crowded in to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus makes his way, as you can see there, it says that he went up to Jerusalem. He was in Capernaum in verse 12. He walked toward the temple, and this is what he saw. As he approached the temple, he saw the cream of the marble walls and the gleaming gold of her huge pillars and the capitals that would have been illuminated by the morning sun. Huge Passover crowds were already flowing into the steps to the great court of the Gentiles. A walled, uh, marbled, paved area adjacent to the side of the temple, the length of three football fields, some 250 yards wide. Great throngs, this historian said, surged the tables of the money changers. In fact, we know from the book of Exodus chapter 30 that each Jewish person was commanded to give a half shekel of their money, if you will, for every male worshiper that was over 20 years of age. And for this and all the other offerings in the temple, foreign money, you can imagine, with its idolatrous images on it, could not be used. So everyone who would come to Passover had to exchange their money for what the historians would call Tyrrhenian coins. They had to pay a charge for this service. And that arrangement was a great boom, if you will, to the establishment, to the chief priests, and to the scribes. And what had become a place of worship was being turned into a place of corruption. In fact, as I mentioned, uh, Josephus said 2.7 million people were there. They believed over that course of that time on that day of Passover between 3 in the afternoon and 6 in the afternoon, if you can imagine, 255,000 lambs were slaughtered. And so a lot of these people traveling in wouldn't want to carry all those uh, you know, offerings and sacrifices. So there they were, and probably in the greater court of the Gentile. And they were selling all these things. And money changers were there. And they were in their stalls, if you will. And it was noisy, and it was haggling, and it was just jostling from one position to another. And if it wasn't just for the sounds, imagine being there with that many people, with that many sacrifices, with the livestock that would be there, all of it in a small enclosure, if you will. It was almost like a country fair, a stock exchange, all rolled into one. I mean, it's almost unbelievable that the place where atonement was made, sacrifices were given, sin was appeased, wrath would be subdued, God's mercy and grace would be found. And as Jesus enters into the temple that day, his temple is being desecrated for profit. It had almost become a flea market. It was, if you will, priests were fleecing the sheep. And he enters into, in my mind, what must have been like a carnival-like atmosphere. And he says that his father's house was being desecrated. And I'm telling you, he was mad. He was angry. He had a righteous anger in him. Now, I don't ever think we usually get to that point of righteous anger. Because we're always bugged at somebody else or something else. Righteous anger 
is when God's glory is being desecrated, not your rights being abused. But I'm telling you, in this text, he was angry. You say, well, what did he do? Well, I don't know your picture of Christ. Let the text reveal it. Look at verse 15. It says, and making a whip of cords. Stop there just for a second. You say, what do you mean making a whip? I'm just thinking there's ropes all over the place. They're bringing in livestock. Maybe those ropes were there and he just begins to, but I would have loved to see a video of that one. Maybe we'll see that in heaven. He just must have stood there for a little time and he begins to pull those cords and he begins to make a whip. And then look what verse 15 says. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And how about this? Verse 15. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he said there, you know, stopped making my father's house. Verse 16. A house of trade. Truly the lamb at that point was a lion. This is righteous anger. This is white hot anger when God's glory is desecrated. And I just want to say to us, just gently, don't water this down. Don't water this down. I mean, one's portrait often, I I sense, that I hear preached in my circles is Jesus as kind of a milk toast guy and very mild. That's not accurate here. He created, listen to me, pandemonium in the temple that day i mean it was pandemonium can you imagine coins being overturned flock being you know you know animals being moved out he was driving them out if you will he's pouring out the tables he's overturning the coins if you will his father's house was being desecrated and you know it's interesting when he says that line do you see that in verse um 16 my father's house That's quite a statement, is it not? He's the son of God. And this is his father's house. Amazing thought there. In other words, as the son of God, he had the right and the authority to cleanse the temple. He is uniquely the son of God. In fact, after the second temple cleansing, this was the first one. There's a second one in Mark chapter 11. He said, you have made it a robber's den. I said this morning in our missions class that the temple was to be a place for prayer for all nations and I really think that maybe what grieved Christ the most as I believe all of this was taking place in the outer court of the Gentiles and I think the temple was to be a place where all nations can come but they had it devised in such a way that only the Jews can get into the temple and then only the high priest and the holy of holies and then all the Gentiles had to remain on the outside And so the temple that was to be a place for all nations had turned into a place that was only exclusively for the Jews. And so look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. And we looked at that last week where it was a picture of Psalm 69 where David's inner being, if you will, was being consumed by those who were insulting God and Yahweh and those insults David had said had fallen on him. But what David didn't know is really that psalm was about David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples remembered that after he had done that, he likened himself to the one in Psalm 69, where he had a zeal for the purity of God's house. 
where he was so anxious was David to defend God's glory that he willingly accepted all the reproaches that the wicked threw at God. And he burned with such a zeal that this one feeling swallowed up all others. And what a picture that must have been as the disciples looked back on that day and they knew that that scripture was being prophetically fulfilled in this messianic claim where Jesus was consumed, if you will, by the glory of God. And so this is quite a remarkable act, is it not? And that leads us up to where we are today. Because after he did this, you say, well, what happened? Well, look at the text in verse 18. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Okay? In other words, as the narrative continues here, John wants us to see that there's more than the act itself of him cleansing the temple. Why did he cleanse the temple? And it's clear here that the cleansing is a sign that he indeed is the Son of God. And so the Jews want to know, and when it says there are the Jews in verse 18, we really believe that's a designation of the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership, in essence, verse 18, confronts Christ. We don't exactly know who they are. We'll just call them the temple police. Most scholars think that it's a, a, a group of what we would call the Sanhedrin, which were the temple police. And here's what they asked Jesus. They said, what sign do you give us to justify your actions in the temple? In other words, who gives you the right to do what you just did in the, in the temple itself? And really what it was by these Jewish leaders is it was a challenge to his authority. Now, Grace Church, what unfolds after that is four scenes that lead us to the unmistakable identity of Jesus, the Son of God. Let me walk through this with you. Four different scenes that lead to one unmistakable conclusion, the identity of who Christ is. And I think the scenes ought to build upon each other, and we'll move through them fairly quick. But the first scene is this. We'll call it the challenge drawn. The challenge drawn. And it's just what I read in verse 18. Who gives you that authority? In essence, they're saying to Jesus, what are your credentials for such an action that you just displayed? Now look what Jesus said. Look at verse 19 in your Bible. Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. It is a wonderful, impactful statement. Now, the Jewish leaders and his own disciples, according to verse 22, didn't quite understand what he meant when he first met, said that. Destroy this temple in three days, I will rise it up. Jesus, in so many words, invites these Jewish leaders to destroy the temple, and then he promises that he would raise it again in three days. Jesus was offering them a miraculous sign. In fact, anyone who could, in fact, do that sign would have the authority over the temple to regulate all of its practices, right? And, but what you see here is their hearts were hard. And you see this throughout the gospel. In fact, remember when he came And the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 asked for a sign. And they said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, Matthew chapter 12. 
But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights into the heart of the earth. The Jewish leadership craved a sign, and he gave no sign in Matthew 12 other than that of Jonah. They ask for a sign here, and he says, destroy this temple, and I will rise it it up in three days. You know what I think is significant? When you look at that statement there in verse 9, that is the only one of the Gospels that record that statement. Now, I'm going to take you to the other portions. In the Synoptic Gospels, those would simply be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They don't record the statement. Only John records the statement. But I want you to know it's this statement said here that in many ways became a linchpin for his crucifixion. It was almost as though when he made this statement in verse 19, destroy this temple in three days, I will rise it up. They didn't have Twitter in those days or YouTube, but that statement went viral. And it it was almost like it exploded on the scene. And everybody knew about the statement. In fact, let me show you. Look over in Mark's gospel in chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. This, of course, was at his trial. He was at the trial before the Sanhedrin. And you remember, they were just bringing false charges against Christ. And one of those false charges, if you glance down at chapter 14, all the way down to verse 58. In fact, back up. In verse 56, for many, 1456, bore false witness against him. But their testimony in 56 did not agree. And some stood up and bore witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even in this, their testimony did not agree. That's not what he said. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said, you will destroy this temple. So they begin to quote him in wrong fashion. But isn't it interesting that all the way later, three years down his life, when they're trying to bring accusation against the Messiah, against the Son of God, they begin to pull things, if you will, out of the hat. And the statement they go after was the one that he had mentioned three years nearly earlier in the, probably the first week of his ministry. In fact, turn the page there. Look over to Mark chapter 15. In Mark chapter 15, there he was sent to the cross. He was crucified. And you remember there in 1527 with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him in 1529, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Isn't it interesting? A robber has the statement on his lips. Listen, I believe when he said this in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, in our vernacular, it went viral through their conversations. And it became a point of contention that they would use against him in order to crucify him. Now, the, the Jewish leaders certainly have the right to question Jesus, but you will recognize when they questioned Jesus back in John chapter 2, There is absolutely, is this fair, no reflection on what had just took place in the temple. 
Did you notice that? That they weren't concerned for God's glory. They weren't concerned for the purity of the temple. They weren't concerned for the corruption that it was taking place. They weren't concerned that it was no longer a place for all the nations to pray. They weren't concerned when he said later that, he, that they made it a robber's den. They're not concerned at all with what constitutes right worship. They're more concerned that their own authority is being attacked. And so what they do is they demand a sign to authenticate his authority and his prerogative to do such an action. A sign. Carson, the great scholar, said this about a sign. He said a sign would satisfy them. He said presumably some sort of miraculous display performed on demand. He said would have signaled, he said, the domestication of God. He said that sort of God does not does powerful stunts to maintain allegiance, and that kind of allegiance is not worth having. He went on to say, indeed, if the authorities had eyes to see, the cleansing of the temple was already a sign that they should have thought through and deciphered in terms of the Old Testament scripture, end of quotes. So here's the first scene. These Jewish leaders come, and the challenge is drawn. But let me take you to the second scene in verse 20. The confusion is described. The confusion is described. After he made that statement in verse 19, they're they're confused. Look at verse 20. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And and read it this way. You, you know, will you raise it in three days? I mean, to destroy the temple was a capital offense in the Greco-Roman world, obviously. And it took him, and Josephus goes to great length in his history, that they were standing at that point right there where it had taken 46 years to build it. And what they do in the language, if you look again at verse 20, in the Greek, the you is put at the point of emphasis, suggesting that they were mocking Jesus. You know, are you going to raise it in three days? You, if you will, are crazy. Now, listen here. Jesus was not saying to these leaders, you destroy the Jerusalem temple temple, and I'll build it in three days. Rather, he's saying, I am offering you a sign of my death and resurrection as proof of my authority. Kill this body of mine and I will raise it up on the third day. But clearly, both here in John 2 and many other places, these leaders are thinking in a confused manner. They're thinking materially speaking, naturally, if you will. And so they miss the point of what Jesus is addressing. So I take you quickly from the challenge drawn to the confusion described to thirdly, here's the third scene, the clarification discussed. Look at verse 22. It's there. It says in in 21, back up one, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And John is so helpful here, isn't he? He clarifies what he's talking about. He clarifies what Jesus said, that he's referring not to the physical Jerusalem temple. He's referring, if you will, to the temple of his own body. The temple, if you will, back in John 1.14 that had become flesh. It was this temple or in this temple that his body would be 
that sacrificed and that where that would take place. So basically what he's saying is in three days of his death and burial, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would be raised from the dead and the sign was the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me just take a moment here, okay? It's amazing, isn't it, how clear he was of his mission, was it not? He knew who he was. You're desecrating my father's house. He told them at the very beginning of his ministry, destroy this temple, my body, and I will raise it up in three days. In other words, he's fully in control. And it is his death and resurrection that the sign authenticated his claims and the specific action that he had just taken in the temple. I think one one man said it this way. He said, in prophetic style, the temple cleansing represents the symbolic act conveying the inner meaning of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection by which he becomes the temple's replacement in life and the worship of his people. I think that's well said. So the temple, think about it, the physical temple would be physically destroyed. It would become spiritually obsolete. But Jesus' body, if you will, raised in power, will become the new temple where God and humanity meet. And more than just an action of prophetic protest against the ungodly practices, this statement that Jesus makes is really the end of all religion. He basically is saying is no longer is God and man going to meet in a physical temple. God and man will now meet through his person raised from the dead. And so the physical temple that was the dwelling place of God would now, beloved, be fulfilled in the person of Christ as the dwelling place of God. In fact, a wonderful statement by Paul in Colossians, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So here in this text, his body is the new temple. Later, after his ascension into glory, we would become the body of Christ. And so now the temple of God is in you. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says you are the body of Christ. Do you remember when Paul said in Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you? And so now we become the temple of God within ourselves. It's quite an amazing thought. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, we are the temple of the living God. What a statement. He transforms that right here. Now look back at the text in John 12, excuse me, 2.22. When therefore, John says, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He's so humble and so honest there. It was after he was raised from the dead that the disciples remembered that he had said this. And then after that, it says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I love that little statement, they believed the scripture. They weren't believing a feeling. They weren't believing an experience. They were believing the power of the spoken word. And that brings us to the fourth and the final scene, which I think is the most important scene of them all. It seems like a little kind of appendix to the text, but it's fascinating because I call it the conclusion delivered. That's the fourth scene, the conclusion delivered. 
Look what it says in verse 23. It says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, watch this, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Stop there just for a second. Many believed. But this is a very slippery slope in the Gospels, and you'll see this as we progress here in the weeks ahead. If you're only believing in the signs, then you're making the basis of your belief the miraculous signs. But sadly, in the Gospels, the crowd's faith was not the real thing always. And you know that. Now, our Lord is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the crowd's heart. He knows your heart this morning. So look what he said in verse 24. He said, but Jesus on his part, John said, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now it's interesting there. It's the same word for believe as the word in verse 24 that he did not entrust himself. So here's what John is saying. They believed on Christ, but he did not believe on them. In other words, he knew their hearts exactly. And as we walk through the gospel next week, we'll begin with a couple characters, and one of them is Nicodemus. He knew Nicodemus's heart, and he knew it perfectly. Then we're going to meet that he meets the official's son, and he knew his heart perfectly. And then he also knew the woman at the well. You have rightly said, your husband is not with you, for you have had five husbands. So this is a fascinating text here, is that though they believed on him, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew the hearts of all men. Now, if you just step back here for a statement, Second, this is a statement on the deity of Jesus Christ. Only God knows the hearts. Only God is omniscient. Jesus is seen omniscient throughout John's gospel. And so it's a statement on his deity. And so though they believed on him, he did not entrust himself to them. And you might ask, well, why not? And here's why. Because their belief was inauthentic or unauthentic. Their faith was, as you'll see as we go forward, superficial. Listen, here's what they wanted. They wanted signs, but they did not want a full acceptance of his claims and his commands. And this is what you always see with unbelievers. Unbelievers always want a sign, but they don't want to follow the claims and his own commands. In fact, you know, look over in John chapter 12. Let me show you a text there. In John chapter 12, in verse 37... Because you'll see that the signs always don't lead to saving faith. In John 12, 37, it says there, though he had done so many signs before them, it says they still did not believe in him. A fascinating statement here in John's gospel. They believed in him, but some of them will go away in John chapter 6. But he didn't entrust himself to them. You say, well, why? Because genuine faith, hear this, Grace Church of the Valley, genuine faith demands a wholehearted commitment to Jesus as Lord of one's life. It's not enough to simply want a sign or see a sign or not enough just to simply say one believes. You remember from our study when James 
the half-brother of our Lord, said, even the demons believe and what? Shudder. In other words, even the demons believe in God. In fact, what's so painstakingly clear in Mark's gospel is that Mark wants to take you to great end to show that the demons have a greater recognition of Christ than his own disciples because they kept coming to him saying, now is, is it now the time that you're going to punish us? They know who he is, but even though they know who he is, that doesn't lead to saving faith. John, you know, later will say in John 15, he will say that you are my friends if you do what I command you. So the scripture is real clear that when you believe, it's a commitment of heart and life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, here are four scenes that lead us to the unmistakable identity of Jesus as the son of God. Listen, as Jesus purposefully cleansed the temple with messianic zeal, he also accurately predicted his own resurrection from the dead, identifying himself as the Son of God. It was brilliant. He said exactly what he was going to do, and he's done it. And you're now reading that account. He said, this temple, not the physical temple, my body will be destroyed by you, and in three days, I will rise it again. And that's exactly what happened. B.B. Warfield, the great theologian, said this, that the Lord himself deliberately staked his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. And when asked for a sign, he pointed to this sign as the single and sufficient credential. Think about your Savior. He called his own shot from the very, very beginning. And so the fulfillment of his resurrection from the dead proves his identity as the Messiah and the utter truthfulness of Scripture. So, beloved, we would say he is Lord of the temple by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus, listen, has sole authority, if you will, whose very word rules the church. It rules our worship. His word is what is ruling over all things. So that I would say that no elder board, no pope, no bishop has the right to dictate to the church of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are to sit at his feet, study his word, follow his example, and worship him. And the entire purpose of John's gospel is fulfilled even in this text. But look to the end. Look back over at John chapter 20, verse 30. In John chapter verse 30, I mean, here's the whole point of really every single passage in John's gospel where it says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So very clearly there, John wrote this gospel for both an apologetic approach, that you would believe that Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, he had an evangelistic purpose, that you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote. Let me see if I can bring this all down together in terms of the gospel. Maybe some of you are new to us. 
But if I just condensed it this way, I, I would say, you say, what is, what is this all about? Who, who is he and what has he done? Well, the scripture's clear, and this is what we've been learning at Men's Equippers on Wednesday morning. We've been having a great time at Men's Equippers surrounded around the theme of the gospel. And it was really kind of interesting because one of the biggest questions on Wednesday was not so much what's the content of the gospel, but what do you do with people who profess the gospel and don't live it? And I just think this text is fascinating. There's many people who believe, but Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because until your faith gets to action and the fruit of your life, then we're not sure of the root of what is there. But the simple, profound gospel is this, that God is a loving ruler of the world. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, he is a loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us in that world. He's king. He's the creator. We're the subjects under him. But of course, man rebelled against that rule. Man rebels and sins. And so instead of Christ ruling, man sins against God, rebels against that rule, and sets himself up as his own king. It's not a true king. In fact, man rejects God. And because God is a ruler of the world, he must punish sin, and he punishes the rebellion of man in sin and judgment. That judgment is both immediate, that judgment is in the future. But God, out of his great love, if you will, sent his son to die in our place. Whereas you could not ever work your way to God, he in his love sends his son to die in your place for your sins. But part of that glorious gospel is that God raised Jesus up to life again as the ruler. And so here's the power of the resurrection right here. His physical body, temple, was destroyed. He rose it up on the third day, and he rose it up again, did God, and he becomes Christ, the ruler of the world. And then the profound gospel is this. It leads you to a choice. And there's only two ways to live. You either submit to him and fall in line under his lordship, or you reject Christ. And that's the profound nature of the gospel. But there's always a choice at the end. There's always two roads at the end. There's always two ways to live. You either live for yourself, or you submit to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him in obedience. And so I just ask you this morning, have you repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever done that? Not grandma, not grandpa, not mom, dad. Maybe it's just you. Maybe you're in high school. Maybe you go to Kingsburg. Maybe you go to Reedley. Maybe you go to Emmanuel. Maybe you're at middle school. Maybe you're an adult. But I'm asking you, have you ever trusted Christ in genuine faith and repented of your sin? Have you trusted him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? You know, think about the analogy here, that as the Jewish people would come to Jerusalem for Passover, for forgiveness of sin, 
my question to you as a worshiper this day who's come into this place, have you come to Christ for saving faith? That's my prayer. That's my prayer. So Jesus is both a lamb and a lion, isn't he? But he has a holy zeal for his temple. And from the very beginning, he told us about his resurrection from the dead upon which we are to place our faith in him. I pray that you would.